You're listening to a podcast from 702. Bongani Bingwa on 702. Your number one news and talk station. On 92.7 and 106 FM. It's eight minutes after five o'clock and it gives me great pleasure to welcome to the studio somebody who's uh, writing, certainly I have followed for some years now and uh, he's uh, just really a true South African hero to me and I think it was important for me to bring him into the studio just to kind of set the scene and the context of where we come from in our democracy. When we look at things like state capture, it's easy to think about the moment and only what's in front of us and forget that uh, some of the issues that we have seen rear their ugly head have been with us uh, for really, you could even say, a number of decades. Let me start by saying, in the biblical story of the Jewish captivity, an orphan peasant girl rises to prominence and marries the Persian emperor, becoming the queen of what was then the most powerful kingdom in the world. She, of course, soon faces a moral crisis when she's forced to choose sides as her people are being persecuted. Does she turn a blind eye and enjoy her privileged position? Or does she side with the downtrodden and possibly risk her access to the throne? She's admonished by her uncle Mordecai, who's also the man who raised her and really her guardian in the story. And he says to her, do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. And you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Now, there aren't many people who can understand the very real price that Esther in the biblical story could have paid than our next guest. In the biblical tale, it all ends well for the Persian queen, but not really so much for Andrew Feinstein, who is our guest this afternoon. In a manner of speaking, of course, in 1994, he campaigned furiously for his party, of which uh, he had been a member since the 1980s. He rose through the ranks and became an MP for the African National Congress. He earned himself a bit of a reputation as a crusader for good governance and the name Mr. Clean. The dream was shattered several years later when he left the party because he could no longer deal with its stance on HIV AIDS then. And of course, uh, also uh, its handling of matters related to, you could really say, Democratic South Africa's first real scandal, the arms deal. Remember that Molanyana skeleton? It seems a bit of a Sunday picnic now, except it was everything but. Andrew Feinstein, thank you for joining us and welcome to the Afternoon Drive. Thank you so much. Great to be here, Bongani. Now, one of the points you frequently made, and you did so once again today at the gathering, was how our young democracy was almost, in a way, poisoned from the get-go as various European leaders, uh, John Major, Helmut Kohl, came to this country ostensibly to welcome us back into the global family of nations, whereas their real motive was selling arms. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I worked before I was in Parliament. I worked as a facilitator at the Cadessa negotiations at the World Trade Center um, near what is now the Oliver Tambo International Airport in Joburg. And at lunch and sometimes even at dinner, because these sessions went on for a while, there'd be this extremely well-dressed people. And I never quite knew who they were. 
until years later when I was on the Public Accounts Committee in Parliament. We were investigating the arms deal and the corruption allegations, and I had access to the prosecutors, and they sort of mentioned almost in passing that these guys, these besuited people who we didn't quite know who they were, had actually been executives of some of the world's largest weapons makers, and they were, in effect, preparing the way for our arms deal. So they were talking to the people they knew would be the decision makers. Obviously, Tabo Mbeki, who everybody knew would be deputy president, and effectively in practice, the prime minister, to Nelson Mandela, Joe Modise, who everybody knew would be defense minister, and various others. And, you know, thinking back on it, um, a, a good friend of mine and a brilliant writer and activist, Henny van Furen, has recently published a book, yes, of course. Apartheid Guns and Money. And if you trace what was happening in the later apartheid era, which was systemically and deeply corrupt, this arms deal had been planned even during those later apartheid years. And these executives were around to remind our new leaders that this deal would not only placate the white generals, who obviously weren't that happy with the transition to a democracy, but was also a great way to fund one's political party. Because the linkage between arms deals and the funding of politicians and political parties is pervasive throughout the world. We, of course, had no idea about this in South Africa. I have to ask you this, that given the massive redress that you could argue still needs to happen all this time later, why and how were we so easily seduced? You know, there are two responses to that. The one is that we were just simply naive and ignorant. Um, and that we were so new in government, we had so many huge challenges that we really took our eye off the ball. The other is a more sinister reading of it, which is that we ourselves knew that this would be a very good way to fund the ANC. It would be a very good way to fund the patronage money in politics that in the first years of our democracy had not been an issue. But as Thabo Mbeki was trying to consolidate his position as Nelson Mandela's successor, um, patronage and everything that went with it became much more important. And perhaps those people in the party who had lived outside South Africa, particularly those who'd lived in Europe, be it Eastern or Western, knew that these arms deals were a great way to get money to certain people they needed to consolidate their power and also to fund the political party. You naively, of course, write in the book, in your first book after the party, uh, that one of the people you approached to try and deal with things as you were uncovering some of the related matters that were emerging was one Jacob Zuma. And he at the time gave you a bit of a friendly ear. We'll continue that conversation in just a moment. 702. 702. Bongani Bingwa. Wrapping up your day. It is 18 minutes after 5 o'clock today. We're having a conversation with Andrew Feinstein. And of course, as we were reflecting on the history of how we got here, Andrew, as you became aware of some of the deals and some of the contracts and the promises and the monies that were exchanging hands in the arms deal, you alerted somebody that you thought would surely deal with it. And that was, of course, none other than Jacob Zuma. So Jacob Does Zuma, it seem funny almost as you <laughs> it, think about it, it now? It does. Well, you know, I suppose what's funny about it is my extraordinary naivete. 
I remember at the time, um, after I'd seen Zuma for the first meeting, he was at the time deputy president and leader of government business in parliament, in which capacity I went to talk to him. And I remember his then political advisor, John Jeffrey, saying to me, so does anything come up about Jacob Zuma and his relationship with Shabir Sheikh, who was his financial advisor and a recipient of contracts on the arms deal? I'd never heard the name before. So I quite honestly said to him, well, no, only because I didn't know who they were talking about. So I suppose it's funny now just in terms of my naivete and ignorance. But yeah, but it was an extraordinary thing because um, then Deputy President Zuma, while the president, Tabo Mbeki's people, particularly um, minister in the office of the presidency, Esop Pahad, was putting unbelievable pressure on me and the other ANC comrades on the Public Accounts Committee telling us basically to scrap this investigation, that we had absolutely no basis for any investigation. There was no evidence of corruption. And who were we to accuse the government, the cabinet, the party of corruption? Um, Jacob Zuma was saying to me, it's your constitutional responsibility. Push forward with this inquiry. And I was completely confused at the time. I mean, I was fairly young. I was sort of, you know, 30 or so. And wasn't really involved in the sort of machinations of power within the ANC. I was there doing a technical job. My background was in economics. So in a sense, at this point in the narrative, Jacob Zuma was the hero. He was the corruption buster. (laughs) Well, that's what I thought. And I thought, gosh, this is strange. He must be planning to try and unseat Mbeki. And this arms deal must be an Achilles heel for Mbeki. Little did I know that it was as much, if not more, of an Achilles heel for Zuma himself. I only put the pieces together later and discovered that what had happened was Jacob Zuma had done a deal with a French arms company, a company today called Thales, then called Thomson CSF, who had basically promised him money if they protected him from any reputational damage or investigation into the arms deal because they had paid bribes, amongst others, to Shabir Sheikh. And they um, basically, they hadn't paid him. And he needed the money. I think what he needed the money for, very interestingly, was the first ever um, development of what is today in Kandla, because it was for what I knew as his traditional homestead in rural KwaZulu-Natal. But, you know, then Kandla wasn't a household name, yeah. And so his assumption must have been that if my committee started investigating, because there was no motivation for the French pressure. to pay, it would exert pressure on the French to pay him. They sent him and Shabir Sheikh an encrypted fax after about three months of Zuma telling me to really go for it while Mbeki's people were tell- telling me to stop everything. And as soon as he received this encrypted fax saying the money would be in his account on a particular date... He changed his mind. He would have nothing to do with me and allowed Mbeki's people to kick me off the committee to neuter the investigation. Just very quickly, I mean, give us a refresher. How big, how significant was the arms deal? Well, you know, and I think we need to see this in terms of fact that we were signing these deals in 1998, late 98, early 99. So as Mandela was stepping down and Mbeki was taking over, we have spent somewhere between 60 and 70 billion rand on the weapons and the financing of the weapons for weapons that really we haven't needed. 
some of which we haven't really used. But, Andrew, what do you say to the Sarita Commission saying, I mean, they all but lauded the deal, in fact, saying uh, that not only did we need it, but they concluded that it was above board and that, in fact, the arms we procured, we've been putting to very good use. You know, I don't want to cast aspersions on a judicial commission of inquiry. But you're about to. But I am about to. (laughs) At the point at which, having made a 200,000-word submission to the commission, myself and a colleague in London, Paul Holden, and Henny van Furen, who I mentioned earlier, um, and having sent them dozens and dozens of evidentiary documents, some of which are available online at a site called um, armsdealfacts.com, The commission basically decided that none of the evidence of corruption was admissible. And the reason given was that these documents, we hadn't authored these documents. So they were therefore stolen documents. Now, the history of investigative journalism over hundreds of years has been based on gaining access to documents such as these and putting them in the public domain. And these documents had been in the public domain for years and years, at which point, we decided to withdraw any cooperation from the commission and the commission did a remarkable job of looking the other way at what is huge and extensive evidence of corruption in the deal. All right, Andrew, we're going to carry on the conversation because that sets the scene then for what we have now been experiencing around state capture. Because, of course, former finance minister Pravin Gordon has put the lowly price tag of 100 billion rand to the state capture Project. 702. Afternoon drive with Wongani Bingwa. Live. Online. The 702 app. DSTV. And 92.7 and 106 FM. Right, it is 20 minutes before 6 o'clock. I'm afraid we are running out of time as we wrap up our conversation with Andrew Feinstein. But against the backdrop of the arms deal, Andrew, I have to ask you, what are your responses to the state capture project? Uh, before the news, I did say that Pravin Gordon puts the price tag at a lowly 100 billion rand. I mean, did we learn nothing from the mistakes of the arms deal? Because in a sense, talking to you almost feels like Groundhog Day in terms of just the similarities and the parallels to what was exposed and how it was handled. I think that the arms deal was an essential foundation stone, if you will, of the state capture phenomenon that we've experienced. Why do I say that? Because the way in which the arms deal was handled, in which we were prepared to undermine our institutions of democracy, be it parliament, the national prosecuting authorities, in order to protect our political allies. So if you were a political ally of then-President Thabo Mbeki, you didn't get investigated, Joe Modise being the most obvious case in point. If you were a political threat to Thabo Mbeki, as was Jacob Zuma at the time, you, you did, did get investigated, should be a shake. And Zuma himself, who, who of course had the 783 counts against him. And I think what those things really told us was that the state and party got fused and that party battles were being fought on the terrain of the state, which is extremely dangerous because what you want is a professional state run by officials regardless of who is in government, who are competent, who are going to deliver, who are honest, who are transparent and who are accountable. And at the same time, that fusion of party and state made what Jacob Zuma has done since he assumed the presidency far easier to do. So that the Guptas, who actually arrived in South Africa and ANC politics in the later days of the Mbeki presidency, 
um, really were given an incredibly easy ride once Zuma was in power. And so now we face the real prospect of a nuclear build program and all the attendant issues that might come with that. I suppose I have to ask you this as a final question. I mean, are there any good guys left from inside? How do we not make sure? How do we make sure this mess never happens again? You know, the one good thing is that a strong, honest, competent leader can actually change an organization and a government. And that's why we shouldn't completely lose hope. But we don't know how somebody is going to be in that highest office. That's the first thing. The second thing that I have to say is that this nuclear deal is going to make the arms deal look like small change in terms of the level of corruption and in terms of its corrosive impact on our democracy. We do not need nuclear power. We certainly don't need Russian nuclear power, given the nuclear disaster that they had at Chernobyl. Who would want Russians building and maintaining your nuclear plants? And perhaps most important of all, if you don't want corruption in a transaction of this size, a trillion, a trillion and a half rand, the two people on the planet you don't want negotiating it are Vladimir Putin and Jacob Zuma. Perhaps the third would be Robert Mugabe, but he's no longer a problem, thank goodness. So this nuclear deal is going to be an apocalypse by comparison to the arms deal. And the people of South Africa have to do everything they possibly can to stop it happening. Cry, the beloved country. Andrew Feinstein, thank you very much for joining us on The Afternoon Drive.